Please turn with me either in your Bibles or to our bulletin insert that has your passage of Scripture printed upon it. We're looking at a very famous uh, passage of Scripture this morning found in Acts 15 about the Jerusalem Council. Uh, If you have your bulletin insert before you, we'll use this as a unison reading. And so let us read the Word of God together beginning at Acts 15 verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days... God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore... Why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. You know, there's a part of local history uh, that's not too well known that intersects with the history of our denominational institution of higher learning known as Erskine College and Erskine Theological Seminary. And that is that in the early days of this young city of Rock Hill before there was ever a Winthrop, the founding fathers of our town knew that they wanted an educational institution in this city. And so either some of them, and this is where my memory's a little cloudy, some of them were either associate reformed Presbyterians or they knew some ARPs, and they began to talk about moving Erskine from its one and only location in due west South Carolina here to Rock Hill. And a committee even studied it 
and recommended back to the board of trustees at, at Erskine that they stay where they, where they were. And one part of me thinks, you know, what a ridiculous decision. I mean, just think how Erskine could have grown and had an impact on so many different lives over the years in a growing place like Rock Hill and especially so close to a large city like Charlotte, North Carolina. But you know, there are two sides to every story. And the beauty of Erskine remaining in Abbeville County is that it could help educate so many people who were underserved in that part of South Carolina, especially when it came to a seminary education. And that really began to be important in the, in the 1970s and 1980s when so many different denominations Uh, less formal denominations, we might say, who in the older days didn't require their pastors to have a seminary education. All of a sudden, they started placing that requirement upon their pastors. And these pastors who found themselves in churches that they had been serving for years, all of a sudden needed to get a seminary education. And so there were all of these small churches, United Methodists, Assemblies of God, Baptist, uh, AME Zion. You know, the list just goes on and on. And all of a sudden, those pastors started coming to Erskine Theological Seminary because in that part of the upstate of South Carolina, that was the only choice in that day and time. There was no seminary in Greenville, South Carolina. There is now. But in those days, the closest seminary would have been the Lutheran Seminary in Columbia. And so that was a good thing. You see, because our small denomination has been able to serve the kingdom in a large way. And not only that, but the seminary went through a time of rapid growth in those days. I was uh, beginning my senior year at Erskine Seminary in 1981. And our own campus student body had grown from about 30 or 40 to more like 80. And a lot of these new students were in chapel, the very first chapel that I had been asked to preach as a senior. You do a senior practicum. And as I began to get into the sermon that day, I began to hear some amens every now and then. And then it not only was amens, but it began to be, "Mm mm-hmm, and preach it, brother, and preach it, and on and on. And, And I mean, it really kind of got energetic, and instead of bothering me, even though I had never experienced that, it it sort of energized me in my delivery. It was a wonderful thing. But after the service was over, the students from the more formal backgrounds the Lutherans, the Episcopalians, the Presbyterians, they went storming into the dean's office saying, we can't have all this chatter in worship. We just can't concentrate. We can't follow along. We can't do this and we can't do that. And and there was such a, a ruckus, an uproar, that the dean had to get students together from both persuasions and come to some sort of compromise, which he did. But there for a week or so, 
all of that new growth had accounted for a touchy situation. And that's exactly what we see happening in the book of Acts, the 15th chapter, where all of this growth in the church was threatening all of a sudden to snuff out the unity of God's people. Now, it didn't happen at first, though the church was growing by staggering percentages. And we say staggering percentages because we know on the day of Pentecost that we can read about in Acts 2, we have Peter's sermon recorded there for us when all of these people had come into the city of Jerusalem for the feast of Pentecost, Jews from all over the world. Peter preaches his sermon and we're told that 3,000 souls were added to the church just in that one day. And things were going pretty well with all of that growth. We read about in Acts 6 that there is a concern that some of the widows are being forgotten and we see there the election of the very first deacons in the life of the church. But, but once that problem was handled, things you know, continued to go along okay. After all, most of those people joining the church early on appear to have been Jews. You know, people like the rest of the people in the church. Now let's think about that a minute. You know, we, we like people like us, don't we? It's easy to do. People who think like us, people who dress like us, people who make the kinds of decisions that we would make in similar situations, that's, that's the kind of growth that was taking place in the early church there in the early days. Then in Acts 8, all of a sudden we see Philip in Samaria. And we have all of these Samaritans saying, we want to come into the church of Jesus Christ. You know, these despised Samaritans, the Samaritans we read about in, in, in the Gospels that the Jews couldn't stand. These are the folks who are wanting to join the church. Well, even though they were Samaritans, I mean, they were almost like us, so we could let them in. They at least knew some of our history and tradition. But then Philip, the problem with him is, see, he just didn't stay in Samaria. And the next thing you know, he's on that desert road. And who does he run into except an Ethiopian eunuch? Uh, that eunuch we talked about a few months ago here in a sermon, he looked kind of strange. But at least he had a, a scroll of the prophet Isaiah and wanted to be baptized, so we, we let him in. And, and you know, it's beginning to sound sort of like what Jesus said it would be. He said, I'm sending you into Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. And the next thing you know, it's two chapters later in Acts 10, and, and Peter shows up at a prayer meeting saying, I want you to meet my good friend Cornelius. And everybody's going, what kind of name is Cornelius? Now didn't you know that would happen? I mean, you go out and baptize those Samaritans, and the gate is wide open. If you let one in, you've got to let them all in as if it's not enough that we have Samaritans and Ethiopians in the church, we now have a Roman soldier 
of all things, the, a member of the very army that's oppressing us and keeping us from being free people. But of course, there's only one of him. Peter speaks highly of him. I, I guess we'll let him in too. And that brings us to Acts 15. In this passage this morning, you see, ever since Cornelius, there have been more and more Gentiles coming into the church, and now we have a full-scale Gentile problem on our hands. And some in the church are so threatened that they begin to think about the way that it used to be. These people have to be circumcised, they say. They have to keep the law of Moses if they're going to be a part of our church. In other words, they were saying to the Gentiles, you have to become a Jew before you can be a Christian. And I wonder if we ever feel like that. Have we ever had that kind of thought in our minds? You know, you've got to become an ARP before you can be a Christian. You know, this just isn't a theoretical exercise. This is an important question because we've been talking about for some time and it's a part of our long-range plan as a congregation to plant a daughter church. And I can assure you if we're targeting non-churched and unchurched people out in our community of Rock Hill for this new church plant, they are not going to be like us. You have to become a Jew before you can be a Christian. That simple sounding statement is one of the most serious debates the early church ever had to wage. It literally threatened to destroy the church. Luke says here in Acts that after there had been much debate, he doesn't tell us if it was one day's debate, if it was a week, if it was three months. He just kind of gives us this sterile communication which is a, a, a kind of veiled way of saying it was a knockdown, drag out church fight like you've never seen before and they should have fight, fought over it because it was such a vital issue. You see, this fight wasn't simply about prejudice or, or background or tradition. As Will Williman puts it in an article I was reading of his on this very passage, he says it was all about ultimately who is saved and how they're saved. And he's right. In other words, how is it that God chooses us? How is it that God loves us and saves us? Notice that some in the early church had their answer for that question. Verse 1 tells us about these men who came down from Judea and they were the ones saying, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So it's all about circumcision. And then there were other believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees who said, well, that's, that's kind of right, but we'll do you one better. It's not just about circumcision. That's part of it. 
It's also about the law of Moses. You've got to keep the law of Moses. You know, he says a lot of things about the Sabbath and about what we're to eat and what we're not to eat and how we're to do this and not do that. And do you see what these people are really saying? They're, they're basically stating that if you want to become a part of our church, then first of all, you need to become like us. Look like us. Walk like us. Talk like us. Have the same passions. And on and on we could go. Does any of that sound familiar? I mean, have you ever been guilty of that? And, And have I? We no longer use labels in the church today like Gentile and Jew, but there are plenty of labels we use in our society. Labels like liberal and conservative. Labels like feminists and ex-cons and alcoholics, the socially deprived, those with special needs, the poor those with HIV, how many times do these sorts of people come into our churches and we say, well, you might be able to come and be a part of our church if first you become like us and think like us and look like us. You know, a couple of months ago, when we had a special committee meeting to plan and prepare for the All That Jazz dance that we sponsored for the special needs community here in in Rock Hill, well, really Rock Hill, Chester, and Lancaster, uh, people from all over came to that that we held in our church gymnasium just a few weeks ago on a Friday night. As we were meeting that day, one of the ladies who came who has a lot of knowledge in that area, it came out in the conversation that she has a special needs child herself. And it broke my heart to hear her tell the story of being in a church with her child and and special needs people can sometimes make some noise. I mean, when we go to Camp Joy, we have lots of noise. And people in that church came up to her afterwards and said, you know, we've had some people here like this before and usually they just end up and leave the church. As if to say, we don't really want you around because you're not like us. You know, we're going to be starting a worship service for the special needs community toward the end of August. It'll be the fourth Thursday night of every month. And we're doing that not just for the special needs people themselves, but also for their families because that lady is not the only one who's ever had that kind of response from a church family. And so we have to be ready for people who are not like us at least on the outside. People who have special needs, people who are noisy, people who are in wheelchairs and walk with crutches. And the reason we need to be ready for that is because not only are we going to host them on the fourth Thursday night, but 
after they get to know us, some of those are going to want to join this church family, which I think is a wonderful thing. And I hope that the Holy Spirit leads them to do so. Because I served a church in Gastonia, North Carolina that had some special needs people in it. And that was one of the delights, one of the delights of being a pastor of that congregation to experience life with that family and all that those young people had to teach. Because people with Down syndrome can teach you something about love that you can't learn anywhere else. It's called unconditional. And the only way we ever experience unconditional love is through God Himself and Jesus Christ. None of us know how to, how to give that kind of love. But those people do. You know, along about now, we ought to ask a simple question. We ought to ask what kind of approach Jesus took while He was on this earth. Were all of His disciples exactly like Him? I mean, think about His twelve disciples. Anything from a zealot to a fisherman to a hated tax collector and everything in between. Think about some of his little one-line kingdom parables like we find in the latter part of Matthew 13. You know, he says the kingdom of heaven is like a great net which is thrown into the sea and gathers fish of every kind. Fish of every kind. What are we to do with these people caught in the net of God's grace. Well, notice in our passage at verse 8 that after these men from Judea had spoken and after these Pharisees had spoken, Peter stood up and said, God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as He did to us. And He made no distinction between them and us having cleansed their hearts by faith. And then just like he was an attorney in a courtroom giving his closing argument, Peter says, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Now make sure you understand what's being said there. In our vernacular, we'd say something like, we're trying to get them to jump through hoops that we ourselves haven't been able to negotiate. Sure, they haven't kept the law of Moses, these pagan people that are coming in, but neither have we. We who've had every advantage to be right and to do right and to get it right, those of us who've grown up in the church, those of us who've had scriptures spoken to us since the time we were on our mother's knee, we haven't gotten it right either. Paul is 
making that basic argument or part of that argument all in Romans 1, 2, and 3. He's saying we're all on the same playing field. It's a level playing field because we're all sinners. Romans 3, 23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And what that says to you and me today is that whether we're talking about a murderer on death row who's all of a sudden converted by the grace of God in Jesus Christ or an alcoholic or some person from a different culture or faith or even someone who is very similar to us and yet they they interpret Scripture differently, they'll all need God's grace to be saved. Just like I need God's grace. Me, the child of a middle class loving family, with a wonderfully good education, president of my youth group when I was in high school, a seminary graduate not once but twice, I too need the same grace of God as the thief on the cross. I too need the same grace of God that humbled Saul on the Damascus road, the same grace of God that he so freely offers to so many. You see, when we think about it, our church is is sort of like any other church. We don't talk in terms of Gentiles and Jews anymore, but we still talk about those who've grown up in the church and the new people. What we call the old guard and the new folks. And we're all saved by grace. Every last one of us. Now to those outside the church, those outside just looking in, our willingness to try and include everyone may look like some sort of weak affirmation of people in general. And to those of us on the inside who live and work here week in and week out, our struggle to welcome everyone whom the Spirit brings here may take a lot of effort. And yet Peter reminds us in this text that having been caught in the same net of God's grace, we shouldn't be too surprised when we look around and see who's caught in the net with us. After all, if God made a distinction between the good and the bad this side of eternity, we wouldn't be here, would we? That's what grace is all about, that so many of us are here. For God shows His love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's what this sacrament is all about today. In some ways, it portrays the same thing. That those who have been in this church all of their lives for 75 years receive the same invitation as those who've been here less than five weeks the same invitation to come and worship, to take and eat in remembrance of Him. And as He invites us to come and commune with Him, we give thanks once again to our wonderful God for the net of grace that He casts far and wide so that you and I can be a part of His kingdom and not just a part of His kingdom, but even eat at His table. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. 
To Him be glory forevermore. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we do thank you for this gift of amazing grace that you've given unto us in your own Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his sacrificial death on the cross for our sins and for the sins of the world and the way in which your grace makes us all the same in your sight, brothers and sisters in Christ though we may be very different in background and training and education, we are the same in Jesus Christ. And we thank you for that amazing grace today that saved wretches even like us. We're thankful for this time to be in worship and to have your presence in our midst, and to commune with you, and we ask your blessing upon us. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We want to reaffirm our faith together. To do that, we use the words of the Apostles' Creed. They're printed for you in your bulletin. Let's stand together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day He rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. As we prepare to come to the Lord's table, we want to turn in our red hymnals to hymn number 250, Break Thou the Bread of Life, we'll sing both stanzas.
please be seated. And as always, it's a great privilege for me to invite you to the Lord's table on His behalf. It does belong to Him. He's made all of the preparations. And that means whether you're a member of this church or whether you're visiting with us today, that you're certainly welcome to partake of this sacrament with us as long as you trust in the Lord Jesus as your Savior. And we hope that if that's the case that you will uh, partake with us. We normally uh, hold the elements if you're able to do so until all have been served and then we uh, partake together. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Hear now the words of the institution of the Holy Supper of our Lord Jesus Christ as they have been delivered unto us by the Apostle Paul. For Paul said, I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he blessed and given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner, he also took the cup when he'd supped, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he should come again. Let's pray together. Dear Father, we are thankful for this table that sits in our midst, for your work and your sacrifice that makes it possible and for the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus, and for the way that you have extended an invitation. Indeed, we think of the Lord's words, I stand at the door and knock. We thank you for the way in which uh, you come to us and the way in which you invite us uh, to come to you. And we're thankful that this table in such a wonderful way portrays uh, the sacrifice that our Lord made as we think about him hanging on the cross and how his body was broken as the bread will be broken, how his blood was poured out for our sins as the wine will be poured out. And we thank you for this opportunity that we have in this time of worship to not only remember His sacrifice, but to examine ourselves as Your Word teaches us to do. And so we pray that we might see our great need for Your saving grace in Christ and how the only righteousness we can ever claim is through His righteousness. And we thank You for the power and presence of your Holy Spirit as we worship together and commune with you and with one another. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. It is according to the holy institution of our Lord Jesus Christ and in remembrance of Him that we do this from the same night in which He was betrayed, He took bread and when He had blessed and given thanks, He broke it. And he said, Take, eat, 
This is my body which is broken for you.
body of Christ broken for you, eat in remembrance of Him. After the same manner, Christ also took the cup when He'd supped, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me.
blood of Christ shed for many for the remission of sins, drink in remembrance of Him. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you that you've called us to your table and have fed us. Uh, We thank you for the way that you took these common elements of bread and wine and juice and have set them apart uh, to your use here in this sacrament. And we're thankful for the way in which this table not only reminds us of Jesus' sacrifice in the past, but for the way in which it helps us to look forward as well uh, to that picture of dining with you at your heavenly table. Uh, We always look forward to times around the table with good friends and loved ones. And we thank you for allowing us to experience that today through the power and presence of your Holy Spirit and because of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. And we pray that you will have strengthened us through this, that we'll be drawn closer to one another and closer to you in the days to come. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Our closing hymn is found on an insert in your bulletin, Marvelous Grace. Let us stand and sing together.
now the grace of God that is greater than all our sin, the peace of God and the mercy of God the Father be upon you, and the blessing of God Almighty, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with you this day and remain with you forevermore. Amen. Thank you.